few nations in history garner as much interest as Nazi Germany. When we examine this fascist superpower, we are left asking ourselves many questions, most of which beginning with the word, why? The reality is there are many questions surrounding the Nazis we do not and may never know the answers to. In today's episode, we will explore six of these questions. Six mysteries of Nazi Germany. Welcome to Wars of the World. Most people know Adolf Hitler as the German Führer, but less is known about Adolf Hitler the man. With a legacy that has come to symbolize the true evil of mankind, it seems almost unfathomable that, like the majority of ordinary people, he grew up in a fairly typical family with their own joys, their own sadness, and their own troubles. Despite his association with Germany, it is well known that Hitler himself was of Austrian birth. Although the two countries shared a symbiotic relationship for many decades before the Anschluss of 1938, as Hitler's influence in the Nazi party was growing, in 1925, he employed his half-sister Angela Raubel in the role of housekeeper after her husband died. And Angela Raubel did not come to the Hitler residence alone. Hitler soon became quite obsessive over her daughter, Gailey, who was 17 and 19 years his junior. When he discovered that Gailey was in a relationship with his chauffeur, Emile Maurice, he forbade her from continuing it and fired Maurice, warning him to never come back. Afterwards, Hitler only further tightened his grip on Gailey, refusing to let her meet up with friends or even go outside without him or one of his most trusted aides. Living in his Munich apartment, Gailey was effectively Hitler's prisoner, and she made several plans to escape, but sadly, all fell through. Then, on September 18th, 1931, the pair got into an argument after Hitler refused to allow her to go to Vienna. Keeping her trapped in the apartment, he traveled to Nuremberg, but was recalled back to Munich the next day, when he heard the tragic news that Gailey had shot herself in the chest and died after the bullet ruptured her lung. She was just 23 years old. An investigation ruled the death as suicide, and this left Hitler in a deep depression as he mourned her death. However, from the moment the news broke of her death, questions have been asked as to the nature of Hitler's relationship with Gailey and his potential role in her death. A contemporary newspaper article claimed that Gailey showed signs of physical abuse as well as her gunshot wound, such as a broken nose, implying Hitler had been violent towards her. Others also voiced their belief that Hitler was engaged in a sexual relationship with her, and this was not just limited to outsiders and Nazi critics. Even members of Hitler's family have gone on record for saying that they knew the two had been intimate. Regardless of whether there is any truth in the accusations of sexual activity, 
Many have pointed out that the relationship was certainly unhealthy and toxic. Hitler's possessive attitude to Gailey is typical of abusive relationships, where one party holds almost total dominion over the other. Given that Gailey made several attempts to leave, each thwarted by Hitler, and with her last hours spent arguing with him one more time, it is easy to understand how she might finally have broken down and taken her own life. However, the way in which she took her life has also always been suspect. Firstly, why did Hitler, in his account, leave his pistol in the apartment where she could get it? Surely, he must have recognized the danger, given the distress Gailey was in during her time there, whether that danger being her potential suicide, or worse, certainly in Hitler's eyes anyway, of her turning the gun on him. Secondly, it is unusual Gailey would shoot herself in the chest, when the usual method of suicide by gun is to have the barrel placed to the side of the head. It is not unheard of of people committing suicide this way, but it is unusual and carries a much higher risk of pain and potential survival. There are some who even go so far as to suggest that Hitler murdered his niece, and from what we know of Hitler's character, it certainly isn't out of the realm of possibility. However, all the facts of their relationship seem to ask more questions about her death than they answer, and unfortunately, we may never know the whole story of the tragic end to Gailey Raubel's life. Nazi ideology relied heavily on symbolism and the concept of destiny. To them, fate had arranged history so that they could take their place as the superior nation and race on the planet. In a bid to prove this belief, Nazi Germany undertook an extensive archaeological program, hoping to find evidence of the Aryan race's descendants from genetically pure, at least in the eyes of the Nazis, European races, such as the Vikings. Viking culture in particular was especially coveted, and heavily influenced Nazi ideology. In September 1939, with the German and eventually Soviet armies having overrun Poland, the Germans found themselves in possession of what they saw as an important piece of their racial heritage. A skeleton, apparently belonging to a 10th century Viking warrior that had been unearthed at Prague Castle by Ukrainian archaeologist Ivan Borkovsky in 1928. The male skeleton was found with its head angled to the left, its right hand resting on an iron sword, a pair of knives near his left hand, and tools scattered around his grave, such as those used for lighting fires. The Nazis seized upon this skeleton as a way of proving Hitler and his regime were simply reclaiming lost lands rather than conducting an unprovoked invasion. Under the threat of being sent to a concentration camp, Borkovsky was forced to republish his research into the skeleton in order to meet the requirements for his new Nazi masters, who needed him to help legitimize their territorial claims. For what purpose Borkovsky's new research was used by the Nazis, beyond their own self-deception, is unclear, as nobody outside of Nazi-occupied lands believed the skeleton's new identity. Nevertheless, as far as Berlin was concerned, the skeleton linked Germanic peoples with their Nordic Viking ancestors, 
and that was how it was labeled until four years later when the Soviet Red Army stormed across Eastern Europe, pushing the Nazis back to their own borders. Sadly for Bolkovsky, history would bizarrely repeat itself, for now his new Soviet masters threatened him with being sent to a gulag if he did not publish his new work again, this time claiming the skeleton was a member of the Slavic Premyslid dynasty. Bolkovsky once again U-turned on his conclusion, but of course, for the objectively minded, this does leave the question of just who this man really was and where he came from. Modern researchers, free of political ideologies, have concluded that the man did indeed come from Northern Europe, specifically around the coast of the Baltic Sea, which would make him a prime candidate for being a Viking. However, researchers have pointed out that it is not so clear cut, as archaeologist Jan Frelick explained to the BBC in 2019, just because he was born in the Baltic doesn't automatically mean he was a Viking. Back then, the south coast of the Baltic Sea was also home to Slavs, Baltic tribes, and others. Therefore, the mystery remains as to the origin of this man, who, unbeknownst to him, would become a pawn of both Nazis and Soviets during the darkest times of all of human history almost 1,000 years after his death. While the Allied nation's perception of Nazi Germany is one of a single, unified superstate bent on global domination and racial purity, it is easy to forget that Nazi society had many of the same problems as any other, and that includes crime. Theft, black marketeering, arson, sexual crimes, and murder were all just as problematic for Nazi law enforcement as they were elsewhere. And in the lattermost case, Nazi Germany even had its fair share of serial killers that prowled German streets. Perhaps the most well-known serial killer in Nazi Germany, assuming you discount the Nazi high command themselves, was Paul Orgesau who history now remembers as the S-Bahn murderer. Over a nine-month period between 1940 and 1941, Orgesau took advantage of the national blackout that was intended to curtail Allied bomber crews from finding their targets to assault and murder women until his arrest and subsequent execution on July 26, 1941. However, according to Nazi records, probably the most prolific serial killer was Bruno Ludke. Born near Berlin on April 3rd, 1908, Ludke soon showed that he had difficulty keeping up with other children at school and was soon sent to a dedicated school for children with learning difficulties. After finishing his education, he worked for his parents' laundry business where he drove a horse and cart on deliveries and collections. Customers often complained that he was extremely cruel to the animal, and this was a time when animal welfare was not at the forefront of people's minds, so we're talking really bad to the animal. And he often stole some of the money paid by the customers, which led him into confrontation with his parents as it was harming their business. Ludka was also known to enjoy hiding from view and then leaping out at people unexpectedly, especially women and young girls. His disruptive activities meant he was by no means a stranger to local police, but while charged for petty theft and disturbing the peace, he was never charged with any violent or sexual crimes. Under the Nazi regime, 
things became even tougher for Ludka. Being of below average intelligence and clearly having trouble fitting in with the ordered society of Nazi Germany, he found himself more and more of an outcast. Then on Friday, January 29th, 1943, 59-year-old widow Freda Rosner was found murdered, robbed, and sexually assaulted near Kopernik, where Bruno Lodka lived. Investigators from Berlin quickly learned of Ludka and decided to focus their efforts on investigating this feeble-minded man, as they described him. Under a typically terrifying Nazi interrogation, Ludka confessed not only to the killing of Rosner, but to at least 50 other people in and around the area. Following this confession, the investigators trolled through their files and began pulling out unsolved murder case after unsolved murder case, which Ludka then appeared to confess to having carried out. That was enough for the investigators. They had their man, probably one of the most prolific serial killers in German legal history. Declared insane, he could not stand trial and was so sent to the Institute of Criminological Medicine in Vienna, run by the SS, where medical experiments were carried out on him until his death, just over a year after his arrest. He was reportedly executed, but many have cast doubt on that claim, instead believing he died in a medical experiment gone wrong. However, in the years since his arrest, many voices have joined a chorus that are arguing that Ludka was innocent of these crimes. Firstly, the interrogation was carried out without Ludka receiving any professional assistance to help him understand what was happening. He also showed signs of being brutalized during the investigation, and several witnesses have come forward saying if he didn't confess, he would be killed. Compellingly, Ludka's accounts of how he supposedly killed the victims he was being blamed for didn't always match up to the scenes investigated by police, at least not until further interrogations produced the right story. The German authorities attributed these discrepancies to his mental disability. And in a society where any so-called imperfection was looked down upon, few questioned it. Looking back, with so many questions that can never be answered about the arrest of Bruno Ludka, we may never know if he was a deranged serial killer, or just another tragic case of discrimination instigated by the Nazis that led him being a scapegoat for who knows how many real murderers who the Nazis let walk free at the expense of an innocent man. After declaring war on the United States in the wake of the attack on Pearl Harbor, Hitler became obsessed with finding some way of striking at the US mainland, and in particular, bombing New York City. Answering the Führer's demands, German scientists and engineers began developing a variety of potential wonder weapons, or Wunderwaffe, to strike fear into the hearts of New York City, ranging from the conventional to the truly outlandish. We have a video all about these Wunderwaffe on this channel, which you can check out if you'd like to see more. By far the most promising, but by no means easy method of striking at America was to develop a transatlantic bomber, and four proposals were submitted by German manufacturers for the so-called America Bomber project. Of these proposals, it was the design put forward by the Junkers Company, 
who had already gained a name for themselves by producing the Stuka dive bomber that preceded the furthest. The JU-390 was expected to fly to a range of nearly 5,000 miles, with a bomb load in the region of 4,255 pounds, impressive figures for their day, and with even more advanced versions set to improve upon these numbers. There was even discussion about the aircraft employing air-to-air refueling from other aircraft to increase its range and improve the margin of safety for their crews flying these transatlantic bombing runs. Two aircraft were built, and while the improved second prototype was completed, it never flew, and the program was abandoned after the Allies landed in Normandy, and the French airfields from where the America bomber was due to take off were overrun. Resources allocated for the project were then diverted to fighter production, which the Luftwaffe needed urgently. However, the Ju-390 has, since the end of the war, been the subject of much speculation, and despite evidence to the contrary, tales of the aircraft making a test flight to the German east coast persist. Many of these reports come from second-hand accounts from interrogations of Luftwaffe personnel after the war, while others come from historians who claim to have sources close to the project. However, one source comes not from the Germans, but from an elderly couple taking a walk one day in the US state of Maine. Reportedly, sometime in mid-September 1944, the couple were walking along the coast near the Owl's Head Lighthouse when they spotted an aircraft in the sky. Seeing a plane was not an unusual sight for the couple, but this one was different. It was dark green and black, and unlike the twin or four-engined aircraft they were used to, it clearly had six engines. The aircraft also appeared to be in trouble and was making a slow turning descent before the couple lost sight of it. A cursory investigation of the immediate area ensued, although nothing substantial was discovered. But then, approximately 10 days later, three corpses washed up on the beach. Witnesses at the scene claimed that one of the deceased wore a grey-blue uniform, which they took to belonging to the German Luftwaffe Signal Corps. An understandably excited crowd began to form around the scene, as the bodies were collected by authorities and then transported away. Military personnel then told the crowd that the bodies were from a U-boat that had likely been destroyed by the Navy. But when the crowd mentioned the aircraft the couple had seen, the military personnel reportedly became angry and insisted the men were from a U-boat. They also subtly implied there would be consequences for anyone who said otherwise. And so the story of the six-engine plane remained in folklore until the 1980s when witnesses began coming forward to share their story. Since then, many efforts have been made to locate the wreck if there is one, but the story has yet to be confirmed. So what can we make of this mysterious aircraft sighting and the bodies? The most obvious explanation is it was a case of mistaken identity coupled with overexcited imaginations, combining to concoct a story retold over the years until it reached its final form. The aircraft the couple saw could have been one of a number of American types viewed from an odd angle or partially obscured by sunlight or cloud, leaving the imagination to fill in the blanks. Similarly, the uniforms the dead Germans were wearing could have easily taken on a different look having been in the water for so long and been misidentified. 
then again, it is still possible that it was a German aircraft and that records of the mission were lost in the fall of Nazi Germany. There is also the possibility that it was another German six-engined type, such as the BV-222 rather than the JU-390. Fact, folklore, or fiction, it is just another mystery we may never know the truth to. In 1940, Hollywood legend Charlie Chaplin starred in The Great Dictator, a political satire that parodied Hitler and Nazism. In the movie, Chaplin eventually delivers one of the most powerful and moving speeches in cinema history, told in the style of one of Hitler's own energetic Nuremberg speeches. Instead of preaching hate, Chaplin calls for democracy, freedom, and unity to prevail. However, almost as iconic is the scene where, acting as the Führer, Charlie Chaplin is throwing an inflatable globe into the air. Yet few realize that the globe is inspired by a real one owned by Adolf Hitler, and just what happened to it remains a mystery. It is one of the great lost Nazi treasures. Known as the Columbus Globe, for state and industry leaders, two of the prominent globes were manufactured in Berlin during the mid-1930s for the Nazis to admire and envision their troops marching across. The second, meant for Hitler himself and positioned in his office, differed from the first in that Abyssinia, modern-day Ethiopia, was changed to Italian East Africa after Mussolini's forces invaded and conquered the nation in 1935. Almost the size of another Nazi-era icon, the Volkswagen, the Führer's globe sat in a large wooden base with custom furniture stands surrounding it. There has been speculation that more globes were manufactured, but as the factory they were built in was destroyed in an air raid and all of its records subsequently destroyed, it remains unclear if there were more. In the chaos and the collapse of Nazi Germany, the whereabouts of Hitler's globe continues to be debated if it has survived at all. Over the years, many globes have emerged which have been claimed to be the one owned by the Führer, but none have been conclusively proven to be his. This uncertainty has not stemmed interest from private collectors who wish to purchase a piece of German Nazi history, with one globe recovered by a US soldier selling for around $100,000 at an auction in 2007. However, historians generally agree that Hitler's personal globe remains undiscovered. Given its place in history as a symbol of Hitler's megalomania, it has become something of a holy grail for Nazi treasure hunters. The problem is confounded by the lack of photographic evidence concerning the specific globe in Hitler's office and the fact that many Nazi globes were defaced or destroyed by Allied soldiers, with Germany being scratched out or having bullets shot through. It may have therefore been destroyed during bombing or fighting in the streets of the capital, but then again, it may also be sitting gathering dust in someone's attic, basement, or storeroom the owners unaware of the significance and value of what lies there. In 2005, an 11-year-old boy inspired by the Disney movie Holes decided to go digging in his backyard in Dunedin, New Zealand. 
After going down around four shovels deep, he suddenly hit something metallic, and after clearing the soil away, he was aghast at what he had found. It was a German Iron Cross medal, resplendent with the Nazi swastika in the middle. The young boy recognized the Nazi symbol, and recalling the events later in 2020 as a 26-year-old man, he explained that he knew of the symbol and was both shocked and a little afraid by what he found. He said, I thought I hit a rock or a bottle top. Couldn't believe what I was holding. I was so scared to tell anyone, not even my mum, because I felt like I did something wrong or was going to get into trouble. After keeping his discovery a secret for over 15 years, the young boy, now an adult, who has remained anonymous, decided to finally satisfy his curiosity and went public with it in November of 2020, hoping to trace its origins and how it came to be over 11,000 miles from Germany. The German Army's Iron Cross Award of World War II can trace its history back to the Kingdom of Prussia, it was first instituted back in 1813 by Prussian King Frederick Wilhelm III for distinguished service in the Prussian War of Liberation, and like many traditionally Prussian and later German symbols, it was repurposed by the Nazis for the Third Reich. In 1939, the medal was altered with the addition of a swastika and the year printed at the bottom. Thus, we know for certain that the medal found in New Zealand was issued to a soldier of Nazi Germany in World War II. Having been buried in the mud for so long, it has lost its silver edge. Experts in New Zealand are doubtful that the original owner can ever be found. As to how it ended up in New Zealand, it is likely it was brought to the country after being found by a New Zealand soldier during the war. Other theories include it being a British soldiers who later moved to New Zealand, or the hidden prized possession of a war trophy hunter. In many ways, human curiosity surrounding the medal and other items like it reminds us that while we like to think we know history, in reality there are countless stories yet to be told, and mysteries we will never have answers to. Consider this one medal. In all likelihood, it was issued to a German soldier for an act of bravery against his country's enemies. He then fell in battle, only for an allied soldier to take the medal as a trophy and send it back on its path to the back garden of a young boy in New Zealand. In the grand scheme of history, it is only a minor tale, but to the soldier who was awarded that medal, the soldier who killed that man and took it, and the boy who found it years later, it was likely the most significant moment of their lives, united across nations, ideologies, languages, and time by one mysterious artifact of war. And there you have six mysteries of Nazi Germany. Please leave a comment down below with your own thoughts and reactions, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. Thank you for watching, and I'll see you next time.